Who the hell are you? Gene Hunt, your DCI, and it's 1973. Almost dinner time. I'm having oops. Men and women have different brains. That's right, it was in the Daily Mail. Women can't fold maps, and men can't get interested in headboards. <laughs> Rebelling against a system that wants to grind us down. We'd see in the oven, man. No. Not doing anybody's tea tonight. Oh. We're having chippy. Dora. Now, nobody's saying that Chatsworth Estate is the Garden of Eden, but it's been a good home to us, to me, Frank Gallagher. You alright? She just told me a joke, buddy. I'll, I'll tell you it later, Kev. I think we need to have a little chat, Kenneth, alright? <laughs> okay, I'll come out now, Kev. Okay. Right, then, it's Manchester United versus Spurs in this important fifth-round cup tie here at Old Trafford. And it's the third slightly bowling chart until kick-off. listening to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North, from the North. Welcome to Grim Up North, I'm Adrian Scott. And I'm Matt Carr. Today's episode is called Acting the North. And before we start, how many of those films and TV programmes that we played in the clip at the beginning do you recognise? Have a think, and we'll be putting up the answers on the blurb for this podcast. Because today, we're going to be talking about how the North has been portrayed in cinema, on television, in the theatre. We're going to be speaking to my daughter, Eva, who's an actor. And we'll also be talking to the playwright, Steve Waters, whose double bill, The Contingency Plan, has just finished a run at the Sheffield Crucible Theatre. We'll be talking about some of the shows, plays and programmes that have defined the North in the popular imagination. We're going to be talking about actors and acting, about accents, about theatres, about the pull of the North and the cultural domination of London, about how the North is represented on the screen, on the stage. But first, Matt, what are the shows, what are the programmes that shape your view of the North? What defining moments do you remember? Well, quite a few, really. We've discussed some of them in previous episodes, so I won't go into too much detail about those. I mean, we've talked about Billy Liar. Billy Liar, especially I remember the scene when I was a kid, I watched that film on a ship coming back from the West Indies, because that's where my my family lived, and we come back to England. And I sneaked in to where they were showing a film. I didn't really understand the film. No. I didn't notice it was was grey, it was black and white, but what Mm. struck me most was the ending when um, um, Billy Liar doesn't get on the train with Julie Christie. So they have their chance to escape the North, which the film tells us is yeah. not a place to hang no, around no, no, not a place But to he be. doesn't take it, mm. and he tricks her and tells her he's getting on the train, he gets off it, goes yeah. and buys something, and doesn't yeah. get on it. And then, you know, later on there were things like, I guess, Our Friends, Our Friends in the North. Yeah. Like, one of the most powerful dramas I've ever seen on, on British TV. Really. Amazing. Amazing. And how, how about you? Well, Kaz... I think Kez is definitely a sort of seminal portrayal of the North that I understood the school in Kez was just like my school. Right. Uh, And and that thing of seeing your own life on the screen is a huge thing. But um, one of the things that I would name is Dinner Ladies. Right. Victoria Wood, I think, was a voice from the North. She understood that humour... I, it's just genius, and it, it, it's it, you know, it, it's a works canteen. It's 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 not the place you'd think drama and comedy would come from, right. unless you've been in one, and then you'd realise. The other one would be Coronation Street. I think Coronation Street. Why did Coronation uh, Street because, mean so much to you? Because my whole family watched it. My mum, my grandma, who weren't from the north, um, but they watched it. It told stories, you know, about 
Minnie Caldwell and Ina Sharples, people that I'd met on the streets of Sheffield, uh, on the streets of the North. So I think they all were, were portrayals of a North that I knew and understood. Right, right. I mean, I never, I never watched Coronation Street. I used to, for some reason, when I was young, I used to find the music depressing. <laughs> it is, though. I, I just, was something, there was something so... I never really got into it, never really understood who the characters were. I, I knew about Ina Sharples. I didn't understand all the relationships with the people. And the music was so mournful and melancholy, it made me want to shoot myself. <laughs> but that, that's what I loved about it. And apparently the, the writer, um, he, he would sit when he was a kid as a young gay man would sit under the table and listen to the conversation in his house. And he said, I've got to, when he became a writer, he said, I've got to put these on the screen. These people deserve to be heard. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it told stories about class because um, the woman who ran the Rovers return, I can't remember her name now. She was, she thought she was better than everybody else. Um, and then there was Elsie Tanner, who was the local sort of what, in those days would be called a bit of a tart. Yeah. Actually, she was a very powerful character. So I think you got a lot of those, what almost could be stereotypes, but weren't. They were people that you recognised. And the fact that everybody in Britain seemed to love it, but sort of put, put the North as a, a, as a phenomenon, but also a, as, a, as a cultural um, artefact on... on, on into the consciousness of, of people. Yeah, no, I kind of get that now, but as a as a as a child, I no, didn't I get, get it at all. <laughs> but, but I don't know exactly what you mean about Kez, because I saw Kez um, when I was very young, as well, probably in my early teens, mm. and the kind of um, the poetry and the brutality of it is just quite quite overwhelming. I mean, it was uh, like in this scene. That, I mean, the, almost everybody knows the plot of Kez and, yeah. and the revolving round yeah. the kestrel and so on. But I mean, in this there's one particular scene that anyone who sees that film can't help but be overwhelmed by yeah. in there. The one when when Casper explains what it's like. Yeah, let's 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 just let, have a listen to it yeah, when yeah, you'd yeah, like let's. to bring up a Kestrel because it's just an astonishing piece of acting and writing. So I took Swivel off and let her on, up onto post. There were no stopping her now; she could fly off. All were on her were her jesses. I thought she must fly off. She she's forced to fly off, but she didn't. She just stood there. Oh, terrified. Well, anyway, she was stood there and I walked off into the field and she was looking around all over the place and when I got in about 70 yards from her in the middle of the field, I called her. Kiss, kiss, come on, kiss, come on then. No, it happened. So I thought, well, I better walk back and pick her up. So while I was walking back, I saw her flying. She came like a bomb. About a yard off through her, light lightning, head still... And you couldn't hear wings, they want to sound front wings and straight onto the glove, wham! And she'll grab me for meat. Anyway, I was pleased with me saying I did what to do. So I thought, well, I, I better do it again just to prove that it won't look. So I took her back onto the post and walked back up into the middle of the field and called her again. And she came just as good as first time, straight onto the glove and grabbing for meat. Well, that was it, sir. I, I trained her, sir, and that was all I could do. I think you've done enough, don't you? Well done, Billy. Big hand of applause. Wow. I find that incredibly. There's so much that's amazing and beautiful about that oh, scene, isn't there? Extraordinary. It's I mean, absolutely extraordinary. I mean, um, there's the quality of the performance yeah. from um, David Bradley, who plays Casper. Yeah. And there's just the whole way that Colin scene works Welland, out. Colin teacher. Welland, that sense of communication, <laughs> final, finally some kind of communication yeah. and connection takes place between a boy who's basically been written off yeah. by everybody, hasn't yeah. he? The education system, Everyone. his classmates. His family. Yeah, his family. And the kind of passion with which he, and just with amazing. he talks about it. I think also, uh, it's probably something people don't really realise nowadays, there was a time when you would never hear those accents no. on screen. No. On any screen. I mean, once upon a time, I don't know when you could really trace it, probably <clears> to the, yeah, I guess to around the 60s. I mean... You really had an RP accent on, right. on, on screen, and you might That's occasionally right. have a kind of faux Cockney accent um, bordering on Dick Van Dyke and <laughs> Mary Poppins, but you very rarely heard Northern accents. And, that, and not only speaking, not only in an accent, but speaking in that dialect as well. Well, that, that accent is not Sheffield either. No. It's, it's, it's between Barnsley and Sheffield. That's where um, 
uh, Barry Hines came from. And the great thing about Ken Loach is he recruits people from the place itself. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the extras are just ordinary people. And he shoots, I'm pretty certain he did with that, all his films chronologically. So the actors know they're telling a story. It's not just, oh, we'll do all the shots here and then there. It goes backwards and forwards to tell the story. And you can feel it. It looks on the kids' faces when they're listening to him speak. And it, it, it feels like a voice from the past as well, from the 70s. Like I say, that school, I went to a school like that. There's a bit where they get caned. Right. And I never got caned, but a lot of my friends did. I did. them coming out with their hands under their armpits. Yeah. And that, and that sense of shame and yet bravado. Yeah. Um, and it just captures a, a, a time in the North. But I think it, it was the first time the North burst into the national consciousness. Totally, yeah. And, and also, you know, there's a sense in that in the, that whole film and in that sequence, there's a real critique of the education system, this, from, <laughs> this oppressive um, education system manned by, mostly manned, yes. by teachers with little imagination, yeah. um, no real understanding of the communities they were involved yeah. in, behaving like kind of petty tyrants. Yeah. And then you see Colin Welland, who seems to be that kind of teacher, and then suddenly but he's isn't. not. And he make, he establishes an amazing relationship with, with Casper. And there really always so were the odd teacher like that, even in my school. Um, but, but I think it also captures... Um, my, my, one of my best friends is from a pit village in Rosington, right. and his dad was a miner, his brother was a miner. I always think of him as Kez. Um, and, you know, he struggled to make a, a good life for himself um, against the teeth of some of that education yeah. system. Um, but he has, he has. And he works now in Fervale. He's a community development worker. He's got a master's degree. But it, it, it just tells the story of what a struggle not only people had in the North, but the North has had to get its voice heard. Totally, yeah. I mean, do, do you think, you know, like watching that, Listening to that scene and watching it, and the, some of the programs you discussed, do you think there are any kind of ongoing themes that, that kind of re- reoccur in um, in different kinds of northern drama? I don't mean, I mean, on stage, on yeah. film, and on television. I mean, one that occurs to me on. straight off is the idea of community. Yes. I mean, like I yeah, often yeah. think of one of the most powerful sequences of our friends in the north, which totally blew me away when I saw it in the 1990s, because it's not just a story about the North, it's a story about the whole country. Absolutely. But seen through the eyes of a handful of characters in the Northeast, what, the thing that struck me was the sense of community, mm. and, and also communities falling apart. Mm. Not, you know, like um, one of the most powerful scenes is when the, um, the old dad who's having Alzheimer's gets attacked him. by a dog, yeah. and he goes to complain to the owner of the dog. And the guy just screams in his yeah, face, nothing yeah. to do with you, mate. Yeah. You know, what's, what am I supposed to do with that? And it's, like kind of, it's almost like saying this is Thatcherism, that moment when kind of morality just vanished. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but the scene when Florrie dies and at her funeral, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Christopher Eccleston is crying and weeping. But yeah. all around him are politicians, friends, characters he doesn't even like. But they're all there because there's this sense of this is, this is the community. Whether with its good and bad, it's there, you know, mm. and that's something you see that in things like Brast Off, yeah, Dinner Ladies, in, yeah, in yeah. Um, Full Monty, yeah. I mean, it runs yeah, through yeah. so many things, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, you just have to mention that scene in the Full Monty when when they're standing on the top of the car in the middle of the canal, and and someone walks past and says, "Oh, and I'm not so bad." That that <laughs> yes, that's right. Because that's the other theme that I think is humour. Yeah, there's yeah. this sort of dark funny self-deprecating humor that that just is written through all the good stuff that you get from the north our yeah. friends in the north has got it dinner ladies has got it our Venus and pet yeah had it but even up to um life on mars and ashes to yeah. ashes yeah you know that that amazing character of gene hunt yeah um the the manchester copper um who's everything about policing that you despise That's and yet right. something about him you love him because he makes you laugh there's a, he says it's 1971 it's lunchtime and i'm having oops <laughs> <laughs> there's um often a sense of the, that humor is in the face of adversity as well isn't it it's yeah. in the teeth of adversity quite often yeah it? yeah 
And uh, another Ken Loach film, um, Looking for Eric. Where, oh, yeah. Where they're, oh, where they're looking God. for Eric Cantona. Yeah. Uh, the guy is a postman, and Eric Cantona appears in his room and is like his coach. Yes. But there's there's a really like horrible a scene where he, where he tries to get his son away from a, um, a, a gangland boss. Right. And they do that thing with him again, like, like you were saying about our friends. They bring a Rottweiler and they intimidate him. Um, and there's brutalism is another theme, I think. It is, yeah, that's right. No question about it. I mean, when I think of um, things like Boys from the Black Stuff and yeah. Um, yeah. and Our Friends in the North, they kind of um, those dramas located social problems, yeah. national social problems. They located them yeah. in the north. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the things they were talking about deprivation, poverty, deindustrialization they were not only northern no, problems, no, no. but they but it was the, through the north. Mm. But they first appeared in the national consciousness, in a way. You didn't get. They were stark. In they some were stark. Ways, I mean, you didn't get dramas, say, I don't know, about London shipyards, say, about the closing of the docks. Say. No, sadly, but yeah, you, in some way, you but could yeah. have. You would have found people in very similar situation yes. to people yeah, up in Hartlepool and so on. Yeah. But you know, that's how. That's how the North appeared to the, um, to the country. The barometer of success or that's failure. Kind of, it still true, does, yeah. in a way. And the barometer of humanity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that always strikes me about most good northern productions uh, whether it's tv or theater um or cinema is is there's a sort of dignity and a and a, a an ability to to thrive in a difficult environment um that that you know goes back to love on the dole and things mm-hmm. like that that it's really powerful and i think it makes people think oh yeah you know it might be grim up north things happen that are grim but the way that people react to them is just really powerful yeah but i agree and all the things we've been discussing about there's a kind of roughness about a roughness and authenticity mind you that's not the only thing it's said about north another one about the north another thing that occurs to me is david hare's film weatherby do you remember that no that's an that was a unusual film because it had Vanessa Redgrave in it right. um, and it's all about Weatherby and my first thought was who would want to do a drama about Wea- <laughs> Weatherby but he made it a very powerful film it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't lend itself to kind of cinematic portrayals <laughs> no. about middle class people yeah, yeah. who don't fit that kind of rough authentic yeah, thing yeah. that you're kind of used to in northern yeah. dramas they were quite different, quite depressed and I can't even remember what the whole thing was about there, but it was a very different kind of look at the north well, to some of the things we've been and discussing. I think that's what's clever about Last Tango in Halifax, which is another brilliant northern production. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is that, that some of the characters are from Harrogate. And in a play that my daughter was in, they described Harrogate as a bit of Hampstead that's floated off up north. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you, you had the posher bits of Yorkshire up against Halifax and the rougher bits. And 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 I think that's a, a a more realistic portrayal, and and how they rub up against each other. Well, there's a kind of um, there's a kind of self-deprecating joke even in the title, isn't there? Yeah, kind of exactly. Last Tango in Halifax. <laughs> the two things shouldn't they don't shouldn't belong together. No, those no. two concepts, but they somehow <laughs> Such, do. They're so authentic. So yeah, so I mean, so the North had never really been absent from British cultural life, has it? Certainly not in the last sixty, seventy years. It, no, it and and if it is it suddenly makes another sort of eruption of something like Our Friends in the North or um, Dinner Ladies or, uh, you know, Life on Mars. There's always some some eruption that, that takes everybody's breath away. There is, way. but a lot of this began a long time ago, and we'll discuss that after the break, okay. shall we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. listening to Grim Up North, a podcast about the North, from the North. So when we talk about acting the North, we're talking in the first instance about theatre. Yeah, which preceded TV and yeah. film, obviously, yeah. and uh, there's a long history of theatre in the north, um, which we've sort of touched on 
in some of the previous episodes. Yeah. I mean, we talked about how Love on the Dole yeah. spread out of London and then came out, was kind of shown in various theatres around the north right. and the kind of popularity that had. But, you know, when we were thinking about this programme, I was thinking about J.B. Priestley, who oh, we've also talked about. Good friend of this podcast. Yeah, a good friend of this podcast, and we're good friends of his. Yes. J.B. Priestley, apart from being a novelist, also wrote a lot of plays oh, and, right. and film scripts. But the, what I was thinking of was his memoirs when he talks about growing up in Bradford before mm -hmm. World War One, which he always, wow. for him, was the kind of golden age of his <laughs> life, yeah, yeah. the pre-World War One yeah. North. Because he talked a lot about theatre, Oh, really? um, because he was always going to it, and that was the thing. You know, he was. This was the time when they had the one act. They had a one act play, curtain raisers. All right. They had one act plays. They had curtain raisers before a big production. Uh -huh. And so Priestley, when he discovered his passion for the theatre, he didn't discover it in London. He discovered it in right. Bradford. And he, in his memoir, he talks about. Um, I, he says, "I was a constant and enthusiastic playgoer." defying the heat and discomfort of those old galleries. I enjoyed almost everything, from Oedipus Rex and the Trojan women to the Waltz Dream and the Count of Luxembourg and the Merry Widow. Wow. Of course, though, for some reason I've forgotten now, it was never one of my favourite Viennese operettas. So he wow. was watching... That's the range of things that, yeah. that was appearing in Bradford. Amazing. Um, and you don't think of Bradford now as like a cultural meta, mecca, <laughs> no. if people ever had. But these cities all had yeah. their own theatrical traditions that went back a long way. And that way. whole thing of repertory theatre yeah. that, that spawned so many great actors, because they could cut their teeth week in, week out in different theatres. I suppose it was before cinema, so that's where people got their entertainment. I guess it was. And I guess there's another there's another dimension to this conversation, which is... Where the, the distinction between provincial theatres right, okay. that are showing touring productions, yes, yeah, of which there have yeah. always been yeah. those in the north, yeah. and theatres doing original productions yeah. Yeah. Um, and producing original drama themselves. And work. we here in Sheffield, of course, we're really lucky. We are. Because we've got the Sheffield Crucible. Yeah. Which so, yeah, yeah. So you've got the Lyceum that will take some of that, that, that stuff from other places and give you lots of entertainment. Yeah, yeah. But the Crucible produces its own work in the north. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a few. I bet you have there as well, haven't you? I have. Yeah, well, Standing at the Sky's Edge is the one that sticks in my mind because yeah. that's coming back. Um, but, yeah, I've seen yeah things about food banks and all sorts of, of local plays that, yeah. that that get space in that theatre. In that amazing space. I know. It's I mean, and it's Even my own daughter, she did a one-woman show. I saw it. Gave her she, a was, night. she was magnificent. Yeah, fantastic. But I remember I've seen I've seen that stage transformed into so many different yeah. things, you know. Yeah. And it's a, it's a just an empty space. It's a literal Peter Brooks empty space. It is, yeah. And yet it becomes. I've seen it turned. I saw the firework maker's daughter there once wow. when, with my daughter when she was um, much younger, and you know it had a climbing frame up the side of it to kind of have all the heroines kind of um, stunts, you know. She was yeah. climbing mountains and yeah. so on. Uh, you know, and the next time I was there, it would be I don't know. Um, it would be one of my friend Steve Waters' plays. Right. Um, I've seen a few of his plays yeah, at the yeah. Crucible. And in fact, by chance, we spoke to Steve. We did. We spoke to Steve Waters. And Steve, for those of you that aren't aware of his name, has been described as one of the UK's most accomplished political playwrights. Steve's trajectory is not obviously northern. No. Born in Coventry, educated at Oxford. Many of his plays have been set in and around East Anglia. He teaches at the East University of East Anglia. Right. But he does have a long-term connection with the North. Let's and see the what Crucible. he has, and the Crucible yeah. in particular. Let's see what he has to say about it. Yes. So, welcome to the podcast, Steve. Can you? Very, very delighted to be here. Can you tell us about your connection to the North and the Crucible Theatre? Because it's kind of an unusual trajectory, really, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, I, I, I'm certainly not legitimate on your programme. I'm a Midlander, basically. So, <laughs> uh, although I will argue that, and I've heard that argument on your programme already, that the North can be distributed in surprising ways. Yes. Uh, and, I would, and I would suggest that the Midlands should have a part to play in this conversation. Uh, and in fact, I, I grew up in Coventry, um, but I'm now an honorary resident of East Anglia. Uh, but as you imply, Matt, uh, I have had a long-standing relationship, particularly with Sheffield Theatres, uh, with the Crucible Theatre. I've actually had, crikey, nearly, I think, four shows up there over the years, starting with a piece called World Music in 2003, a play called Unthinkable 2004, and very recently they've revived uh, a double bill I've written of 
uh, plays called the Contingency Plan about climate change, which which literally finished on Saturday. So I'm I'm feeling very bereaved. Oh, at I the moment. <laughs> but it wasn't always well seen, though, was it? The Crucible. I mean, um, when the stage was first created and so on, even people like Laurence Olivier sort of railed against it, didn't they? Well, I think. There was there's a lot of mythological sort of stuff around the foundation of the crucible, and I think rightly so because it, there's something so bold about its inception. Uh, I think what you're alluding to, Matt, which is talked about in this wonderful book Stirring Up Sheffield by Colin George, who who was responsible for the uh, kind of creation of that stage. He he actually came to run the previous incarnation of Sheffield Repertory Theatre, I think it was called. Um, in Norfolk Street, or certainly in the vicinity of where the new venue is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it was, it's like same same story in Birmingham. You, you often had already a core, uh, vivid sort of theatre scene that with the kind of confidence, I suppose, of post-war municipal socialism, perhaps, you know, suddenly went up a grade. Um, and George went for, went for broke in the sense that he was really interested to bring to Sheffield the ideas of one of the great theatre directors of, of, of the last hundred years, Tyrone Guthrie, um, who was had many, many theatres over in the States, like Stratford, Ontario and elsewhere, which were conceived of as open stages. So I think I finally get to your point about controversy in the sense that uh, what, what obviously a conventional theatre is end on, people sit in front of it and it's a kind of proscenium art stage. Uh, but George and others and, and Guthrie had this conception of theatre being more like the Greek stage, yeah, uh, Epidavros. So this idea of, you know, at the very least on three sides, um, engineering, which I think they did brilliantly under the guise of the um, theatre designer Tanya Moisevic, uh, this incredibly intimate relationship between a large auditorium and an open space. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people, as you say, uh, resisted that. They thought that it would be uh, too arty, that it would be... Uh, it would be only appropriate for certain sort of shows. I think those doubts have, have, have basically kind of been utterly demolished by the yeah. last, you know, 50 years, because we're obviously in the 50th year of that theatre this year. Um, but those those questions linger for some, I think. Um, I think Olivier wasn't fully against it. I think he was enlisted by some rather dubious local forces that were a bit reactionary frank <laughs> i don't it's think funny, he thought too deeply about it having, <laughs> having gone to see quite a few plays at the crucible even before i moved to sheffield including yours mm. um you know what it never ceases to amaze me the capacity of that empty space to lend itself to so many different worlds theatrical worlds is quite astonishing really so when you made the reference to the greek the original greek yeah. stage that does that's that's really does kind of strike a chord with me well, what it doesn't, uh, in a way, what I love about it is it's the it's a riposte to the most conventional forms of theatre that we mm. tend to indulge in in this country, which is sort of living room naturalism. That looks really boring on the stage of Crucible. Crucible is yeah. about movement. It's about space. It, it It's very happy with work set outdoors, for instance, in a way that I think yeah. uh, a lot of our theatres quite struggle with that. So Shakespearean is the other reference point, obviously, that... You know, when people stood on the globe, they conjured up any environment the story needed the audience to imagine. And I think the Crucible does that same thing. As you say, it's, it's, it's designed for movement and the flow of people across space. It somehow seems to stack up with Sheffield's own municipal identity at its best, really. Well, I mean, even the name, the Crucible, yeah, such a such a sort of poetic and resonant kind of reference to Sheffield's industrial past. And then talking about the whole idea of artistic the crucible of artistic creation as well as industrial very well thought out really i get you know one yeah. of the things we're talking about in this episode is um the relationship a theater like the crucible has to the cultural power of london mm. like what do you what's your take on that you know is there a tendency that you kind of can see cultural production in the north as being sort of separate from the mainstream even second tier well there is that risk i think and as i say i would extend it to uh all kind of areas that are more than 50 miles away from London. I mean, I think, you know, you're right to suggest that there is this uh, uh, extraordinary um, favouring of London as a cultural metropolis because um, obviously wealth concentrates in London in all sorts of ways and, and it's, it distorts, mm. you know, everything, our economy, our cultural life, our political life. Um, and 
that surely affects theatres too, because after all, a lot of these theatres, if you take Sheffield, I know well, Birmingham Repertory Theatre, I know well, Leeds Playhouse, they are very closely connected to the fortunes of their local authorities. Mm-hmm. You know, so if a if austerity cuts, uh, yeah. you know, the, the revenue of local authorities, yeah. theatres, meanwhile, can't, you know, guarantee audiences coming in the same way because obviously people haven't got the money in their pockets. So you get into this sort of, not death spiral, but certainly very vicious circle of of funding, which something like the Arts Council can't make up that gap. Um, whereas, you know, theatres in London get public subsidy, but they're also rest upon huge amounts of development capital coming in from, you know, like the Donmar I work with, its principal sponsor is Barclays. Now I'm sure Sheffield would pause uh, if it had to have a principal sponsor in the form of Barclays, but it wouldn't probably get that sponsorship. Uh, so it's it's a classic story of our country, isn't it? To those that have more should be given. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the the great inauguration of a lot of these theatres, which often happens in the late 60s, 1970s, is so linked to the confident world of that post-war settlement that has been under fire for a very, very long time. Yeah. What place do you think that, that theatres like The Crucible play in the sort of national theatrical consciousness? Do you, well, do you think they have a an influence? They really do. They really do. And particularly, I mean, you mentioned Olivier earlier on. Uh, you know, one of the key things that should be noted is Britain used to have, England particularly used to have a, a very strong repertory culture, yeah. um, you know, of, of, of you know, theatres that would run shows in rep uh, and would provide uh, incredible sort of uh, testing grounds for new talent. You know, again and again, you read about the history of these places, you read about Albert Finney, or you read about Julie Christie, or you read about, um, you know, Ian McKellen, for God's sake, you know, emerging from uh, as much more like, to be, just as like to be seen in Birmingham as they are to be seen in the West End. Uh, so that idea of these proving grounds for talent. And I think it's also worth noticing, noting that very strong distinction between uh, a receiving house, I like, for instance, at Sheffield, as you know, there are three spaces. Mm-hmm. One of them, the Lyceum, is largely, uh, and I'm sure they'll all hate me saying this, but it's ro- it's like a shop. Its role is to pick up yeah. touring touring shows, and many yeah. of them are, you know, uh, great. But you know, Mamma Mia or yeah. uh, the Exotic Marigold Hotel, yeah. uh, and it's it's right that everybody wants to see that in their city. But the Crucible, and indeed the what's now the Tanya Moisevich space, is a producing space. Mm-hmm. So there, they are. Uh, a net contributor to the cultural life of this country Uh, and I think that's the thing that is to be fought for because you know where else are we going to hear from the playwrights of Sheffield Uh, you know the new voices that are coming through this has been and we've gone across to Liverpool you know think about the extraordinary uh, vein of work that came out of the Everyman Theatre yeah. Uh, the the Bleasdales, you know, the w- Willie Russells, yeah. you know, it's an incredible stream of talent that, yes, of course, ultimately becomes part of the national storytelling, television, etc. But it begins and 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 doesn't completely end in these provincial producing houses that have their own identity. So I think the risk is that, and I, this is kind of I feel delicate in saying this, but clearly, who tells the story of theatres? And obviously, some of the people that tell the stories are critics and national uh, publications. Um, and they don't even really get paid now to go out and do reviews. Yeah. You know, it's a, so they descend like royalty to these cities, like I'm doing you an enormous favour. Uh, you know, they're already kind of the arms are folded. There's a slight sense of, you know, if it's not in London, it's probably not so good. Um, and I think that kind of, I, I, I'm doing them a disservice because some of them are actually brilliant. And, you know, in the old days of the Billingtons and so on, they made it their business to go out and and to sort of, in a way, rebuke London theatre by what the extraordinary yeah. ambitious stuff that was happening in other theatres. And Sheffield's often treated as the second national theatre because of its three spaces. It actually churns out as much work. It seemed like that, is it? It's the second... Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the range of work. Yeah. I've certainly read... A lot of actors, Kenneth Branagh, he said, "We love coming to Sheffield, mm, Derek Jacobin, mm, yeah, because I, well, I don't know why, but I, I presume it's what you've just said, partly." Yeah, because I think it is 
for most actors, and Paul Reddy, who's in uh, the contingency plan, said exactly the same thing to me in the head of steam on Saturday night, which is like the residential pub. Um, but that feeling that you're in an important space, part of the history of theatre, and you, you're speaking to actually a really diverse audience, because Sheffield, relatively speaking, those, those tickets are a bit cheaper. And I think people feel, rightly, civic pride in that institution. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. You know, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you don't actually get that in London. No one goes to the National Theatre and thinks, oh, I'm so proud of London, you know, or the West End. It, it's like they're tourists or they're, you know, retired teachers on a sort of matinee or coming in from Surrey or, you know, there is no, you know, there are some theatres in the province, the sort of outskirts of London, but it Hampstead or yeah. the Bush, which can claim a kind of local constituency. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, But actually... Sheffield, Leeds, Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, Newcastle, they are calling upon a, a strong, they're, they're making a public into being, I think, by just simply existing. And they're creating, if they've got the capacity to have school outreach, if they've got the capacity to have young people's theatre groups, they are creating the next generation of theatre makers. Wow, that was really interesting. Very, very. <laughs> it, it's great to hear someone, uh, being a Sheffielder, to hear someone so complimentary, so enthusiastic about the Crucible, um, so you know, from from as a playwright, to praise the way uh, Sheffield theatres have, have have worked in the mm-hmm. past, and you know that he's just finished a play now, that was fascinating. Yeah, no, I, absolutely, and uh, it also made me think again of the the magic of that Crucible stage. It's just amazing. I I first went when I was about fifteen to watch Midsummer Night's Dream with school and I was right on the front row. My feet were on the stage and it was the first time I think I ever realised how much as an audience member you are part of a production. Because, you know, you, you didn't want to move around too much in case you distracted them. But when, because it was, you know, the magic of Midsummer Night's Dream, they were running in and out of you because of those, those entrances. You were just completely caught up in it. And then I saw Frost Nixon, uh, a friend of mine, Simon Bubb, was in it. And it had suddenly become a TV, uh, you know, a, a, a TV studio, the lighting, the, the structure of the stage. Standing at the sky's edge, you've got the whole um, block of flats. You've got balconies mm-hmm. and it, it's an extraordinary space. So that was amazing hearing him talk about that. It was. It also it also made me think of this um, idea of you know northern theatre and the whole idea of acting the north. That um, when is northern culture like something specific to itself? Yes. Like I, you know, this is a slice of the north. Yeah. This is what the north looks like in yeah. such and such a city. Yeah. Bearing in mind, of course, we've been talking about the north the whole time, and a lot of the dramas we discussed are actually even much more specific than that. They're Liverpool. That's right. They're um, their Tyneside. Cities. They're cities as well. So it's not just the north. Nevertheless, what Steve was raising, the point of the cultural power of London, yeah. you know, the question of whether kind of northern dramas and northern actors in general might be seen as like second tier, mm. the question mm. of whether being a northern actor and being northern theatre, is that an obstacle to cultural recognition, to the development of your career, or isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's changing. Mm-hmm. I think perhaps there was a time when it was seen as provincial and you were, you know, you were out in the sticks, in the yeah. backwaters. Whereas now, as as Steve was reflecting, productions are produced in the north and then go to London. Some are, yeah. Some, yeah. Um, but I, so I, I think things are changing, but um, it, it's a it's an interesting chemistry between London and the north. It is. I mean, I guess you could say that chemistry exists to some extent with every other part of the country. Yeah, obviously. You? Because you've got yeah. this incredible cultural domination of London all, yeah. the, all the big theatres are yeah. there what, what's seen as important it's got has to, to go in either begin in London or at least pass through London yeah. before it becomes important Yeah, and you know and I think you can't help um, when you're just looking at this theme the whole issue of Northern Actor and Northern Theatre is bound up with how people speak yes, accent accents, exactly. I mean the question is whether having a Northern accent what does that do for you? I mean, sometimes, you know, having a northern accent brings a certain cachet, doesn't it? it? Like, yeah. um, for example, Sean Bean, Sheffield's own Sean Bean. Let's have a quick listen to this, shall we? Okay. The bastard's going to get help. 
Let's finish that bastard off once and for all. Dick Sharp, bastard. And you're still the same cruel flogging bastard. You're a little bit of a Dutch bastard! After the bastards that did this, where do you think? This is the bastard who set us up for the flogging. Bastard that knows how to deal with bullying bastards like you. You pink bastards do that. You little gutless bastard. Pick a sack, you miserable bastard. Stand by, you bastard. 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 Any man comes between me and that bastard. I knew the bastard weren't to be trusted. Come on then, you yellow bastards. What's the matter, you bastard? I think I'd sooner the bastard he were. Bastard. Bastard. <laughs> Epic stuff, right? I'm just when I first heard that. When I first heard that, I was just amazed that he he got to use that word in so many so different. Many times. A lot of them were in the kind of Flashman series. Yeah, but it, still, sharp, all over the place. Sharp. Yeah, bastard. It's just yeah. I think Sean Bean is the epitome of the sort of northern. I noticed they use him for O2 adverts, and it, it's it's got that sort of I don't know it's like your mate talking to you yeah um, yeah but he ca- he just captures it's so authentic yeah you know uh, th- I remember seeing him in a film when he tried to put on a northern Irish accent and it was terrible but anything where he uses his own accent it just feels northern powerful revolutionary yeah well and once again you know what we've been saying before um, there was a time when you didn't hear that, those no. accents. I mean, and in fact, even some of the kind of uh, key northern films, like, say, Room at the Top, mm. lead role played by Lawrence Harvey, not no. a northern actor, or, or Brastoff, Tara Fitzgerald yeah. well, and he, Ewan he, McGregor, not northern actors. Even uh, Life on Mars, Gene Hunt's not from the yeah, north. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But, uh, and and that I think that is an issue. I, I, I think there's a lot to be thought and talked about, about whether... You know, actors are meant to play other people. They're meant to be somebody else. But I do think sometimes there's a laziness about casting mm-hmm. that that you think, oh, we'll take someone who's who's well known rather than someone who's actually from here that can portray. You know, especially when you you're portraying something very powerfully local. Yeah. Something northern. I think northern actors, you know, like Maxine Peake, they get it. They they get, you know, she was in that fantastic drama about Anne, the mother of the Hillsborough, so, um, mm-hmm. yep. who was killed at Hillsborough. And she just gets, you know, what's going on for us in the North. I guess so, I agree. I mean, I guess... that It's more than just accent. There's more kind of um, receptiveness towards that now than there yes. used to be. I mean, I was watching the trailer recently for Room of the Top. Uh-huh. Room of the Top was a big film. Yeah, it was. But the interesting yeah. thing about it was the trailer is very Hollywood. Yeah. It's really a Hollywood Hollywood trailer. Um, and yet it's got people like Simon Signore in it, right. hardly Northern, right. again. Yeah, yeah. And it's presented... It's almost as if they didn't believe the North had enough in it yeah. to kind of um, reach a mass audience. Yeah. So they had to kind of rev it up, have big stars go yeah. in it for a start. And then just the whole way they treat the subject of the film, which is quite a torrid film. Yes, quite, yeah. And for its time, there's quite a lot of yeah, sex yeah. in it, or hinted yeah. sex. So, you know, they had to kind of like crank it up. This is a kind of edgy northern film. And speaking of which, we haven't mentioned This Sporting Life, of course. You know, no, true. This Sporting Life is a seminal northern film. But yes. who plays the lead? Uh, Richard Harris, who's Irish. Yeah. yeah. And Rachel Roberts. Yeah. I'm not sure where she's from, but it's not the north. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... You know, and Love on the Dole, I mean, the the, the film I of that, so. they, oh, the film of that, Love on the Dole, the film of that, the, when we they played They really the struggled with those accents. They really struggled. They? they did. So I guess it, it, it seems to me with this, <clears throat> so just a northern accent, there's a distinction between having a northern accent because you're seen to be a northern character. Yeah. Or the drama you're in is about the north. And yeah. where that having a northern accent places you in the rest of the culture. Yeah. Like particularly, look at, you know, high culture, Shakespeare. Yeah, I mean um, the Northern Broadsides Company, based in Halifax, which are brilliant. I've never seen them, but I'd love to see them. I, I, I saw a production they did of As You Like It. What was it like? <clears throat> With my my daughter's partner was in it in the Cast Theatre in Donny, Doncaster. It was fantastic. It was uh, it was a queer production. It was all Northern actors. It, it was it was brilliant, and it, and I mean. You wouldn't expect Doncaster to be packing out Shakespeare. No, you necessarily. wouldn't. I know that's full of stereotypes. I apologise. I guess it could be. Doncaster. But it was. People loved it. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I hadn't. I'd like really like to see this company, and I was reading about that show because there was a funny um, one-off, I assume, which somebody complained <laughs> after seeing that same show that you saw, right? Saying that um, they hadn't expected to find so many Yorkshire accents, <laughs> and they wanted their money back. <laughs> Northern Broadside kind of gives it away a bit, but anyway, it does. I mean, they, Northern Broadside. They say that in the 1990s, Northern Broadside was one of the first companies to ever use Northern accents to play Shakespeare's kings, queens, and emperors. Wow. Not just playing the drunken porters, jesters, yeah, or fools, quite, yeah, yeah. as was the trend back then. <clears throat> yeah. It was revolutionary, if we do say so ourselves, they say. <laughs> I guess it was. Yeah. I see. I, I think the first time I saw an example of that, it wasn't done by them, it was the production of Othello at the um, Crucible, right. with Dominic West. Oh, yes. Playing Iago. I saw that. Yeah. Dominic West... He did grow up in Sheffield, but he yeah, says he lost his Sheffield accent yeah, when he was like around 10 or 11. But his, um, given that Iago is normally a totally sinister, snaky, deceptive character, you expect him almost to hiss yeah, when do. he speaks. Yeah, yeah. Instead, he's like, um, good old Iago. Yeah. You know, it, it's like, good old Yorkshire Broadband. Yes. And um, <laughs> Excuse my accent is terrible, by the way. I'm not going to be one of those actors. Who I'll let you off. I'll thank let you off. very much. Anyway, it really brings a whole new dimension to the character because you... You know, when you hear Dominic West saying these utterly evil yes. things, because he's saying them, he's poised, planting these poisonous thoughts in Desdemona and Othello, he's doing that in a Yorkshire accent. accent. There's a kind of, oh, you know, wow. it throws you slightly. It's just a, you're not Which used to clever. seeing it. It is I mean, clever. I think it's great. Um, yeah, I remember that production. I remember thinking, God, I hadn't realised he was from Sheffield until then. Um, but it did, yeah, it gave a... a a sort of added dimension I mean the thing one of the things that strikes me about how much more acceptable and powerful the northern accent is is Game of Thrones is yes, that, yes. that there's a the Stark family are all northern I mean not all of them have the best accent apart from Sean Bean but it it, it not only is it seen as um, acceptable they were like the heroic family in it and the north you know, king in the north. It was all, you know, the north had become a powerful force. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I, 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 yeah. I mean, I suppose this kind of distinction we're talking about really goes back to the whole history of RP yes. being the kind of sign of cultural exactly. power in this country. And this yeah. is not cultural, but political power. I, I remember listening to an elocution LP when I was younger. I think we had it played to us at school. And this woman was saying... This is to a group of Sheffield school children. And as you see, I am now speaking with absolutely no accent at all. Yes, yes, I know. Well, that, um, isn't that we what Thatcher like, did as part, of our, as part of Thatcher's political transformation? Obviously, she wasn't from the North, but she was from Grantham. <laughs> but she went to um, elocution lessons, yeah. didn't she, and came out with that cut glass accent, which now kind of makes you your teeth stand on edge when you but, hear but, it. But that idea that I'm not speaking with an accent, Yes, because I'm speaking because RP. RP. And all, all my compatriots in the class were like, of course you bloody is. Yeah. It's a Bosch accent. <laughs> but I guess that within that is the idea that if you speak in a northern accent, or, or more broadly if you want to call it a regional accent, because to some extent the same discrimination can be applied to other yeah. accents, can't yeah. it? Like the West Country accent yeah. tends to get parodied yeah. quite a lot, and yeah. also excluded. There's pretty much only room for a West Country accent in a remake of Tess of the Durban, <laughs> isn't there? So... Is the idea that you know you don't enter high culture, no. the accent automatically puts you on the second tier. So it's interesting to hear something like the Northern Broadside's version of King Lear. Okay. Yeah, I mean, check out this clip, for example, which right. is a speech that anyone who's read or seen a Shakespeare play will have heard. Love King Foolish, fond old man. It's it changes it completely. And 
in a way, why wouldn't it? In a way, because if you think about it, why would? What do we think that all the old kings and queens of England yeah, exactly. walk around going hello? Well, exactly. You know, it just can't have been like that. Yeah, Waller of the Roses. Absolutely, yeah, and, and this in the north. So, it's good on northern broadsides that they've done this. Uh, yeah, and and also that in the clip you could see the northern moors. And it, it all feels really powerfully authentic. Well, it looked like a bad day on the Peak District, yeah. didn't it? Yes, it did. And I it's mean, such a powerful play, so yeah. But you know, the, this shouldn't be this shouldn't be as kind of um, striking no, or as it no, or as revolutionary as it is. I mean, yeah. I remember there's a quote from John Godber, the director of the Whole Truck Theatre Company. He said he was oh, speaking great. to some students in London mm. about his plays and their work. And they said, well, why do you do everything in a northern accent? <laughs> and he said, well, listen to me. Strangely. <laughs> listen to me. What else would I, what other accent yeah, would yeah, I do? Well, yeah. And this kind of thing, you know. But the question, I guess, it still doesn't answer the question, though, you know, looking at it from the point of view of a professional actor's career. Yes. Does having a northern accent help you mm. or hinder you? Well, yeah. You know, does being from the north, is that an advantage? Yeah. Does it take you, does it put you into only certain yeah. niches? Or does it open up avenues to kind of the standard parts that you would expect anybody to get, say? Yeah. Well, I mean, we spoke yeah, so we to none other than... My daughter. Your Eva, daughter. Who's from Sheffield, who struggled and struggled to... Go, wanted to act from being very young, mm -hmm. eight or nine. We had a drama group uh, that she was part of. She got the bug, and then she just... That's all she ever wanted to do. And she's doing it. And she's doing it. She got into drama school. She went to Lambda in London, and she's just about to be in a production called Betty at the uh, Manchester Royal Exchange with Maxine Peake. Awesome, awesome. And this is what she had to say. Let's have a listen. When I was at drama school, I think I remember putting on quite a... I, I feel I played one northern character in one of the final show final year shows and then i remember a lot of the rest of the time putting on rp um and we had to do i think it's changed now i hope it's changed now and this wasn't that long ago this was 2015 2017 but we had to do rp we there was a whole night called rp night where you had an rp is received pronunciation um where we anyone well, everyone in the year did it, and the, the people, this was at Lambda, people who were from, who had an RP accent, they got to do, I can't remember whether they got to do a different, or maybe they, they got to do sort of heightened RP, so they were doing sort of funny, null coward, and all that kind of thing. And the rest of us, whose accents weren't naturally RP, had to just do any scene in an RP accent. It was called RP night. And at the time, I didn't question it. I just thought, oh, yeah, right. And I just thought, oh, because that's what I'll have to do, as if all theatre, film, TV is about people with people from London with pretty neutral or people with neutral accents, and I, and I didn't really question it much, and and it's and even the first bit of my career, I, again, I was mainly putting on an RP accent, and then I don't know whether it's me becoming becoming more um sort of settling into myself or being more sure of myself and wanting to connect more to where I come from and make work about where I come from or whether the industry's actually changed because I think I was talking to people this week about this on the job I'm on at the moment which is an all there's a Welsh actor and then everyone else is from uh Lancashire or Yorkshire and a few older actors were saying that actually when they start to come through the fashion what you know it was the time of uh well no they're, they're this is a bit offensive they're not that old but but pete postlethwaite julie walters i meant they that there was a time when actually it was really fashionable and desirable to be well that's about class as well to be working class and to be northern and to have an accent yeah. to have a, a regional accent which is usually what but it was actually an asset and and there was most of um and i hope it's coming back round that way but in a way that doesn't just fetishize it because that's the other thing that mm. then northern i think sometimes northerners you you get put in something to be 
a, a stereotype rather than just that's why I like Sally Wainwright's work because she shows a variety of northern experience in terms of class and yeah. that kind of thing but um yeah historically there's been a real thing of if people if something's set up north things are pretty grim people are struggling mm. um uh, but and again i think that's why someone like victoria wood was such a genius because she showed that if you're from the north you could still be happy and have fun and um but I, d- I don't know maybe that's a maybe that's a generalization but i do think that there's this a sort of northern archetype of we we talk about this as well in rehearsals of like you know hunched over you're hunched over against the rain and against the you're carrying you know you've been down mines so your back doesn't go up straight you know i think there's a stereotype that we'd like to think we've got past, but I don't know mm. how far we have moved on. But all of that said, in the last few years, when I've had more work, more consistent work than I've had in a while, it's all down to, I, have, I haven't played uh, a non-Northern part. You know, all the players mm. that I've done have been up here and have been, you know, in my own accent really so I think it for me it's now feeling like an asset but that yeah there have been times when I've perceived it as a when I felt I've had to change in order to be a proper actor I hope that Covid will have changed things although having said that my partner who's an actor has got an audition tomorrow for a play in Chester and she's having to travel to London to audition for it because the director and the writer are based in London. So I, the, I think it. I think there is sadly still a bit of a, a London-centric, kind of bent in the industry, but my hope would be that that changes and coming up here and beginning to step into the kind of. Um, uh, acting arts community up here you realize how much is going on and i think i don't know i wonder whether there's a bit of a i think it kind of suits people up here for londoners i don't know maybe this is a bit off but it's i i wonder whether it suits um the kind of northern uh arts community that london underestimates it a bit or doesn't think yeah. there's much going on so that they can keep it a bit because london's ma- what's great about london is that you can be there as a young actor right or whatever and there's pub theaters everywhere and there's stuff going on and the, the fringe scene that kind of uh, grassroots level maybe is it, it's just big and there's stuff going on however you're you can't you you quality of life because you're having to work so much to make enough money to live there is different whereas I think it I, I don't know it feels like to me there's a community of artists up here who are like we can we cannot break the bank and and we do, can do make think, stuff do you think the fact that is it the five major drama schools apart from and then you got Bristol over it that yeah all yeah yeah and again I do you think they make an effort to, to no. reach people in the north? No, maybe they do now. They didn't. I, 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 I don't know. I, I think drama schools need a big... I think the whole, that whole system needs, um, needs to be looked at and changed because you're not getting anywhere near the breadth of... Uh, people that you should be reaching I remember the conversation when I was leaving Lambda and I don't know whether it went anywhere but was about how you yeah you need to go and hold auditions in Manchester and in Sheffield and Leeds but you also need to hold them in Bolton and Bradford and like because yeah because like my partner she I'm trying to think she she there were only a certain amount. She got help with funding for to go to some auditions, yeah, but there were only and you've got to pay for the to get yeah exactly. Mm. So there's some people that just 
it's like, well, I can't even audition for that school because I can't afford it. Yeah, I mean, it just needs, it needs, um, it needs a shake up. But yeah, so I no, I don't think they make enough of an effort. Well, yeah. Oh, when I think about, you know, there's some stuff. I, you know, I had my phase of being obsessed with Judy Dench and that, and and watching that. Um, Macbeth with him and kind of be like oh wow that's you know I was I was influenced by that sort of grand thespian side yeah. but actually the stuff that was when I was a bit younger but the things that made me really like the things that I watched that made me go this is what I want to do and I could do it because I can see people that are like me was Maxine Peake doing Hamlet Victoria Woods Dinner Ladies anything that Sally Wainwright writes, because actually it's the stuff where I see, I think, I don't know, I think anyone would, any, of any background, when you see someone from your background doing the thing you love, you go, oh, it's possible then. Yeah. And, and that's partly why I've moved, you know, I've been going on for years about how I want to come back up north and never, you know, finally done it, partly because it's what I want to make is the work about people up here. It's so that there's more... So that yes, there's the. So that there's a breadth of representation of, um, Sally Wainwright's brilliant, but she's you know she's kind of got the monopoly on, mm. on any sort of complex northern story. There needs to be more, and. Um, but yeah, that is absolutely, why I wanted to act was to to make work about. People up here, just because I think they're, the funniest. Um, most interesting people. <laughs> well, the, what an interesting interview that was. Very eloquent, very thoughtful observations yeah. on all the things we've been talking about, really. I, one she, thing that... she, she's very self-deprecating, and what you don't hear in that is the years of struggle mm, mm. behind all that to get where she's got to now. Mm -hmm. The tears and the, the, the difficulties... And and you know that all that London centric stuff and trying to survive in yep. London. So I, yeah, she comes across really well. I, I really like that idea that she's kind of embraced, in her, completely embracing her northernness, her northernness. now and, and, and made that as a conscious Manchester. decision. You know, to actually move here yeah. to, to do that. Yeah, yeah, it's brave. It's very brave. Yeah, but um, she's in a play with Maxine Peake. She is. So that is good. She it was obviously a wise decision. You know, it's, she's in places she wants to it's be. It's amazing. I remember going to see Hamlet with Maxine Peake with Eva. And she was starstruck, and she put in a letter uh -huh. at the uh, at the stage door to Maxine, and never really heard anything. And she said, "Now she's in a rehearsal room playing Maxine Peake's daughter, and she's like pinching herself." Dreams like, sometimes quite come true. That I'm doing this. Yeah. Speaking of Maxine Peake, I came across um, I came across an interesting interview with her, which touches on some of the things oh, okay. that Eva was saying when she said she was talking about accents and, and oh, whether, right. whether a northern accent, and she said. Um, that there's a tendency to kind of um, typecast you as being an uneducated, ignorant person if you're from the north. And yeah. she said, according to this, she cited Downton Abbey as an example of a program where having a northern accent meant you would have a downstairs role. Yes. And she said that, um, she says, people cast you for your accent. You're only one personality for if you're from the north. Yeah. You're not particularly complex. You're a northerner, and sometimes that's used as a dis character description. Isn't that tr so true, though, that it idea is. that the northern accent defines you as one kind of person isn't it exactly know? and and in that conversation with Eva later on when we were just chatting she was saying the 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 northern part that she'd really like to play hasn't been written yet that it should be layered and complex and just happen to be someone from the north yeah and i think i i do think that one dimensionality is a problem still yeah i mean maxine peak bears that out she says that she won the part of a barrister in Silk. Which was brilliant. And I she says that. the director asked what she was going to do about her accent <laughs> because the character was educated. Oh, my God, really? Yeah. And really? She, yeah, that's right. And she said, you're put in a socioeconomic bracket when you have a northern accent. Yeah, the idea that if you have a northern accent, you're not educated. It's, I mean, it's such a pervasive <clears throat> idea, not only in culture, but in the whole woman. of British society, isn't it? She's such a sharp, yeah. clever, intelligent, bright woman. She's just done um, Desert Island Disc. Yeah. And it, it, it's fantastic. But, I mean, she got into drama school by flute in some ways. Right. They went 
to the RADA. The RADA were doing uh, auditions up north, and she yeah. went along, and she was just lucky. But, but, I mean, that's just incredible to say to her, what are you going to do about your accent? And Silk was brilliant, but it would have been even better if she had a northern accent. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, it's the idea that you couldn't be a barrister be right. if no. you're from the north. I mean... <laughs> And it touches on what Eva was saying, doesn't it, really? Yeah. About um, the whole the whole way you can get typecast. Yeah. And But I guess what, you know, that be that as it may, mm. I thought it was quite uplifting that she embraced her northerners, right. the way she talked about that there actually is a vital and vibrant theatrical world and her, already up here. Yeah, her and her, par- her partner's from Lancaster. Um, and like I said, she was in the Northern Broadsides production. You know, they're finding work as northern actors. and But much more than that, they're hopeful about being northern actors, mm-hmm. playing northern parts, making work up here. Mm-hmm. It does make you feel hopeful. Well, maybe if that part for that Victoria Wood biopic <clears throat> gets written, it would be written by somebody up here. It might even be written and by her. It might even be written by her. <laughs> so I guess I will leave it there then, yes. on that note, really, that, you know, and next episode, we're going to be talking about Seeing, seeing the, north. the north. Seeing the north, which Art. means what? Art. Art. Photography. Painting, photography, yeah. visual representations of the north. And that will be the final episode in this, this series. series, so please stay yes, tuned in. please do. In the meantime, we'll leave you with this little trailer from the BBC's Life uh, in the North series. See how many you can pick out. Absolutely. It's brilliant. Thanks very much. Thank you. Born in the north, against a wonderful landscape, part of a family, a community. Greetings! It really doesn't get much better. You're more than just another face, with a character nobody forgets. Gene Hunt, your DCI in its 1973. It's hard to forget the bad times. But it's easier to remember the good. There might have been tears, but there was even more laughter. And as those years pass, <laughs> the memories grow. A lifetime of them, all born in the North. What a lovely life you lead. I am what I am. Life in the North on the BBC.